There is something wrong with the world. Can you see it? Do you feel it? It's all over the internet, on our news feeds, in our relationships. Things are just wrong, and they are getting worse. Society has become, in a word, toxic. But the gospel has an antidote. You see, some of you were once like that. You were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God. By calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the Spirit of our God. program. If you'd like to serve with us, we have over 100 people registered this summer for our programming. It's going to be the best week of your summer. We would love to have you come and talk to us. We do have nursery available also for volunteers who have children who need care during the summer adventure, so no excuses. Uh, we would love to have you serve with us. It's going to be a great week. Talk to me. Talk to Pastor Bob. Talk to Rachel. Uh, we would love to tell you about summer adventure. It's going to be great. As we continue in our series through 1 Corinthians that we're calling the Detoxicity Series, I thought we would begin on a little bit of a lighter-hearted uh, topic today and uh, kind of a funny uh, moment here at the beginning. And I wonder if we could ask uh, this one question. What if, what if products and marketing brands were really, truly honest about what they were selling us? What would they say if they were totally honest uh, with us? For example, uh, Netflix. Uh, maybe their slogan would be, spend more time searching than actually watching. Now, now if, you, if you are uh, working for one of these companies or if you're a loyal customer to one of these companies, I mean no offense by this opening illustration. Just having a little fun, just kick back with me, just relax a little bit, and uh, let's have some humor. So here we go. How about Under Armour? Maybe this would be called Wear It to Feel Athletic. <laughs> At least I feel like I'm you know, making progress here. Or how about Maybelline? Uh, maybe, maybe it's Photoshop. Ouch. Uh, maybe. <laughs> This one's pretty good. Uh, NyQuil. Uh, slip into a nice coma for a few hours. <laughs> NyQuil. Comes in handy. Comes in handy. McDonald's? Because you only have $4. That's, that's why you're there. That's why you're there. It's a dollar menu. Dollar menu. This one especially strikes home for us husbands and dads. Ikea. We throw in extra parts just to mess with you. Just to, three extra screws. Just an extra washer just to make you wonder. How about this one at a restaurant? Pepsi, slogan, is Pepsi okay? Is, is... Coke for me, please, Coke, zero, Coke. Amazon, Amazon priming us to never leave the house. That's what they're doing. They're priming us to never leave, leave our homes. That's, that's what it is. And then here's my favorite, my favorite one for today is LinkedIn. Connect with people for no reason at all. We don't know why we're on here, but connect with us, connect with me. Okay, truth in marketing, friends, truth in marketing, pretty funny, uh, but on a more serious note, what, what's the real branding reputation of the church? Like if we were to ask non-Christian people out there to tell us what they really think the church is all about, what would they say 
Uh, Pastor Scott Sauls says in his book, Irresistible Faith, quote, in the eyes of a watching world, our lives are often perceived as more lackluster than compelling, more contentious than kind, more self-centered than servant-like, more fickle than faithful, more materialistic than generous, and more proud than humble. See, one of the issues we have at the church is a bit of a branding problem. Uh, Perhaps they might create a slogan that said, oh, the church, yeah, that's where fake plastic Christians pretend to follow Jesus. And one of the ways we can be perceived out there, fair or unfair, is we can be perceived as those who care a lot about calling out sin on the outside, but we care very little about dealing with the sin on the inside. In other words, there's this phoniness, just like the rest of our culture. In their recent book, The Narcissism Epidemic, uh, there's this interesting quote about the narcissism of our day and our cultural moment. The author says, quote, we have phony rich people with interest-only mortgages and piles of debt, phony beauty with plastic surgery and cosmetic procedures, phony athletics with performance-enhancing drugs, phony celebrities via reality TV, phony genius students with great inflation, a phony national economy with $30 trillion of government debt, phony feelings of being special among children with parenting and education, focused exclusively on self-esteem, and phony friends with the social networking explosion. Now, this might hurt to hear, but in a world that is looking for what's real, in a world that's looking for what's authentic, in a world that's looking for what's true, the church can often fall short. This is sad. In marketing terms, we would say we have this incredible product, but we have this also devastating, massive branding problem as well. So what do we do? You know, what do we do? What do we do? Well, this is not a new problem. As we enter into week three of our series dealing with toxic communities, we're reminded that this was a situation in the first century. In week one of our series, we talked about how the culture in the city of Corinth was a toxic culture. They were a pagan society. They were spiritually deceived. They were religiously um, totally disoriented. They were morally bankrupt. And we'll see that probably nowhere as clear as in our text for this morning. And one of the things about the immediate context of this passage was that there was a crisis of leadership and authority. And so one of the questions in the whole letter of 1 Corinthians is, with respect to the Apostle Paul, will this church actually listen to him? Will this church actually take his guidance, especially the narcissistic leaders who are misleading the church? Will they listen We left off chapter four where Paul concludes that chapter with a question. He says this, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? It's up to you how I come, when I come. How do you want me to come? The choice is yours. And so as we look at 1 Corinthians chapters five and six today, this is a hard passage. Uh, Here at Millington Baptist Church, we practice expository preaching. So we just go through books of the Bible. We don't skip over hard passages because we believe the Lord has preserved these in his word for us that we might benefit from them. And so you'll see three different parts to the message today. You're going to see two problems. There There was an immorality problem, then there was a legal problem. There's one gigantic solution to both of them. And then there's three very practical applications as we think about how this works in our lives. It's all in here today, guys. Money, sex, power. This message is rated PG-13. And there's some serious topics at bay. So why don't we pray and ask the Lord for his help. Would you pray with me? 
Father, we, we were reminded that you are holy, holy, ho- holy. We tremble at your word. Lord, the only reason why we can even understand what you have here is because you've opened up our ears and our hearts, for we were darkened. We were foolish. But you, through the gospel, have made us alive together with your son. You have given us a second chance. You have given us your word that we might live by your word. So would you now show us what you have here for us right now today in this time, in this place where we need you. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. We don't need to hear from a pastor. We need to hear from you. We ask that for Christ's sake. Amen. So two problems. The first problem starts in chapter five. Paul gets right out of the gate like the Kentucky Derby. Here he says, chapter five, verse one, he says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant? Wow. Yes, you read that correct. Shocking. Is it, is it hot in here? Or is it, it's just right here. We're, we're already getting into the thick of things. Right? The situation is there's a man in this church who's involved in an, in an incestuous relationship with his, his dad's wife. It's his stepmother. And it, it's clear from the text for, text for technical reasons that this is not a one-time uh, thing. The, the, the term means that there was an ongoing intimate relationship. And Paul is writing and saying, shouldn't somebody deal with this situation? Yes. Why? Well, first of all, for this guy's own sake, to get him back on track, somebody should gently, humbly, courageously speak the truth to him. But nobody would. They just pretended like it wasn't happening, though it was happening. And this guy's sinking fast. Meanwhile, the church is arrogant. They're pretending like they're so very different from the culture around them. But the truth is they were exactly like the culture around them. They were pretending that they weren't, though. Sound familiar? So here's the question for us. What are we currently pretending that isn't happening right in front of us? See, that's the problem in Corinth. It wasn't just that this guy was involved in immorality. It's that the entire church knew about it, and they were tolerating his immorality as if it wasn't even a problem. And then Paul says this. He says, ought you not rather to mourn? That's the appropriate response to sin, mourning. Isaiah the prophet, when he stood before the presence of the Lord and and, and he was holy, 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 high and lifted up, do you remember Isaiah the prophet's response? He said, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king. Woe unto me, he says, I am undone. Mourning is the appropriate response to sin before a holy God. Not pretending, not pride, not self-righteousness, mourning. You know, we're about to enter into another year of the month of June being Pride Month. And we're going to see all around us images and, and things that probably we wouldn't rather see. The appropriate response to that, friends, is mourning. Paul goes on to say, by the authority that he has as an apostle, here is his pastoral counsel. He says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment as the one who did, on the one who did such a thing. 
When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And so here Paul is appealing to his authority as an apostle, but it's not his own authority. It's been delegated by the Lord Jesus himself. Remember, who does the church belong to? Jesus said, I will build my church. This, this church belongs to our Lord. And, and contrary to what our culture tells us every day all around us, authority is not necessarily a bad thing. Now, I know there's such a thing as a toxic authority and abusive authority, and, and, and I understand that. But the answer to bad authority is not no authority. The answer to bad authority is good authority. The scripture is clear that when there are good leaders, when there are servant leaders, then the people flourish in the land. And so the Apostle Paul is, is exercising his authority as delegated by the Lord Jesus, who is king. One day when we get to heaven and we serve under the Lord and he sits on his throne, when Jesus says jump, we're all gonna jump. And his authority will be unquestioned in that day. And right now, many people don't bow their knees. So Paul is, is exercising his authority and bringing what's called a judgment. Do you see that word? The word there is crino. It's a legal term. It often meant to pronounce a formal judicial opinion concerning what is right and what is wrong. Four different times in this passage, he says, put this man on the outside. Verse two, verse five, verse seven, verse 13. Paul says, listen, about this guy, he can do that. He can do that all he wants to do that, but he can't do that in here. That's not the way we do things in here, he says. This guy's in the Jesus community. He's already signed the membership paperwork. But he's way off course, and, and now unbelievers are looking at this. And the whole situation is not good. The whole situation is, in a word, toxic. Now, you might say, what does all this mean? I mean, delivering him over to Satan? What does that mean? Well, my view is that this man will be placed under formal church discipline. And it's a serious action step that the leaders would take and tell him he's living in unrepentant sin and he's not welcome in fellowship at the church, specifically probably fellowship at the Lord's table, that he should refrain from participating at the Lord's Supper. This is a very serious matter. But notice, it's for this own man's well-being. Notice, Paul's heart here is this action step is for his salvation. Did you see that? It's not punitive. It's restorative. And so this is his judgment for this man's good, but also for the good of the whole church. Paul continues in verse six saying, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now the leaven image here, is important. When he says leaven, he's not talking about the kind of yeast that I would put in the dough and make pizza. Their leaven was the little pinch of last week's dough that I would use to make this week's dough. So they, they would always save a little bit of pinch from the last week's loaf and put it in this week's loaf, and that's, that, that's what would make this week's loaf rise. But over time, that would become contaminated. Over time, that would become unsanitary. And so there was a time once a year where they would have to clean out all the leaven from the house. In Exodus chapter 12, when they celebrated the Passover, they cleaned out all the leaven. And that became a picture. That became a symbol of something more spiritual. That became a picture of, of cleansing from sin. And so what Paul says is, you know, just like the leaven, any small amount of sin in your body is going to contaminate the whole body. And so he says, let's keep this festival by recognizing and purging the sin from our body. 
We have a saying, right? One bad apple spoils the barrel. It's the same principle. This is what the church at Corinth didn't get. Their problem was they were not taking this matter seriously, and they were in danger of being contaminated and having this spread. So Paul says, don't do that. Don't you remember who you really are? Don't you remember what Christ has done for you? Remember in chapter one, verse two, he says, don't you remember you're a holy people set apart unto God and you're supposed to provide a striking, a striking alternative to this world's culture, to not live with malice and evil, instead to live with truth and sincerity. Do you see that word sincerity? It means without sham, without deceit. It means we're not polished up nice for just Sundays. We are to be sincere. It's from the Latin word sincere, from, from the Latin word that means without wax. They would have pottery, and if the pottery was broken, they would try to put it back together using wax to seal it up and then pass it off as if it hadn't been broken. And so what Paul is saying, no, not like that. Don't, don't make your life all compartmentalized and pretending to be all together when it's not, not really all together. I want you to be whole. I want you to be, uh, I want you to be sincere, without wax. Totally truthful. That's the way you should follow the Lord Jesus. Not, not fake plastic. Real. Authentic. This is Paul's judgment. Now, I know, I know this seems like a harsh passage. And many people, they, they, they hear this kind of thing, and they're like, well, wow, wow. Doesn't the Bible say don't judge? To which Paul might say, I know it says that I am writing the Bible, by the way. I know what the Bible says. This, this, is, this is one of those commands from the Lord Jesus that everybody knows. And non-Christians know this command, and they like to throw it back in Christians' faces all the time, right? Doesn't the Bible say this? Do not judge. And the word judge there means to be condescending, to be, to be looked down upon. It, it, the word really means to size someone up and to write them off. To judge in this, this passage means to size them up and to write them off. That's judging. And this is something that a lot of people struggle with. Christians and religious people specifically struggle with this. Uh, for example, the Jewish leaders in the first century around Jesus, they were very, very judgmental. And religious leaders today struggle with this too. We struggle with this. This is something that I struggle with. And it, it's ugly when it shows up. It, it is not good. The problem is I don't, I don't get that balance of grace and truth. And, and the problem with this whole aspect of judging is self-righteousness. And here's the thing about self-righteousness, and this might sound harsh, but it's true. Self-righteousness is ignorant and it's arrogant. Self-righteousness is ignorant and it's arrogant. And the reason is because self-righteous people are very rarely self-aware. Because what self-righteousness does is it dumbs down the holiness of God and it actually elevates their own holiness. So in that way, it's ignorant and it's arrogant. That's why this issue is so important to the Lord Jesus. And he says, do not judge. Now, what people think this means is, okay, so here's what Jesus is saying. Don't ever criticize me. Don't ever compare me to anybody. Don't ever confront me about any of my behavior. That's none of your business. Do not judge. But do not judge is not all Jesus said. In fact, it doesn't end with a period here. It ends with a comma. Jesus goes on. He says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. If I could summarize, what he's saying here is, judge unto others how you would have others judge unto you. Judge unto others how you would have others judge unto you. So let me ask you this. How do you want to be judged? How about you? Let me go first. I don't want to be judged. Okay. Okay. Actually, let me just say this. 
if I am judged, I want to be judged with mercy for me, not necessarily for you. For me, though, when I'm judged, I want to be judged with grace, with love, with mercy. That's how I want to be judged. Or at least when I am judged, I want to do so in a way that I can get through this. Uh, but, but sometimes I can be hypocritical. Sometimes I can be inconsistent. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. He says, I, I see that double standard that you have. And so he gives an illustration, verse 3. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Why? Now, why do you do that? What is the answer to that question? Why do I do that? Well, one of the answers is because I don't see it. I don't actually see the plank in my own eye. It's obvious to everybody else, but for me, I have a blind spot there. I don't see it. Another reason why I don't want to look at the speck in my own eye is because I'd rather focus on, uh, I don't want to look at the log in my eye because I'd rather focus on the speck in your eye. That makes me feel a lot more comfortable about the log in my eye if we could just talk about the speck in your eye, right? That's why we do that. So Jesus goes on. He says this in verse four. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, if you could go to the next slide, if you would. How, could you take, how, how, let, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? How dare you do that, right? And then he says this. He says, you hypocrite, verse 5. Take a look at the next slide, if you would. You hypocrite, he says. Now, here's the definition of a hypocrite according to Jesus. A hypocrite here in this passage is somebody who sees what's wrong with everybody else but never sees what's wrong with themselves. That's a hypocrite. Somebody who just sees what's wrong with everybody else, but never sees what's wrong with themselves. That's a hypocrite. So what's the lesson here? Maybe Jesus is saying, Dave, just focus on your own issues and focus on your own stuff. Maybe that's the lesson. Mind your own business. I'll deal with my stuff, you deal with your stuff. Everybody, just leave everybody else alone. Live and let live. Is that what Jesus is teaching? Actually, the answer is no. Jesus doesn't stop here, and neither should we. Instead, he goes on. He says, first, first, take the plank. Do we have a slide for that? Or maybe not. I'll just read it for you. I'm in Matthew chapter 7. He says, first, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. The word first is important there because it denotes some sort of order. When I see you and how messed up you are, that's a reminder for me to go look at how messed up I am. The fact that you're a mess helps me see that I too am a mess. Maybe that's the lesson. Well, partially that's true. But listen, that's not all Jesus is teaching because following Jesus never ends with what's in it for you. He's teaching a passage about self-awareness which leads to humility and love for others. This teaching is about how to help others. Now, how do I do that? First, take the plank out of my own eye. Then I'll see clearly how to remove the speck from my brother's eye. And the problem with minding my own business, the problem with living and let live, the problem with minding my own business is it doesn't help my brother or sister whose business needs minding. And when I do that, as long as I'm not being prideful and self-righteous, that's love. As long as I address my own issues first, then I can help others address their issues. That's not being judgmental. That's obeying Jesus. Now, I know self-righteous judgment gets in the way of love, but following this command brings about self-awareness, and this brings about humility in my heart, which supports love for the other. 
So the point here, friends, is judge not does not mean care not. Judge not does not mean I will mind my own business. Now, what does Jesus teach us about judging? The answer is take the plank out of your own eye first, and then you'll be able to remove the speck from your brother's eye. That's the teaching. Why? Because you care about your brother. Because the purpose of this kind of judgment is for that person's own well-being. I love the way G. Campbell Morgan says it. He says this, Our responsibility for our sinning brother is not created by the fact that he has wronged us, but by the fact that he has wronged himself. And so if we will stay in the spirit of the Lord Jesus, who was full of grace and truth, we can get this right. You know, sometimes when I'm truthful, I can be overbearing. Not Jesus. When Jesus is tough, he doesn't hurt. Or sometimes when I'm too gracious, I can be too permissive. Not Jesus. When Jesus is kind, he's not soft. He is full of both grace and truth. He's the lion and the lamb. He's the servant and he's the king. This is the model that Paul is following in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul continues uh, to share in verse 9. He says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. That's helpful. Some of you are surrounded every day at work or maybe people even in your own extended family and you feel uncomfortable being around them and you wonder, should I even be around these people? Paul says, yes, of course you should be around these people. You are the light of the world. If you, if you have to disengage with people who have a different morality than, than you do, then you won't be able to be around anyone. I was having a conversation with one of our elders recently who, who works in, in Manhattan, and he said, you know, after COVID, he started going in again, and he said, it's really, really changed in, in downtown. It's, a, it's just like lower Manhattan is just, there's a lot of people walking down the street, you're not sure if you should be really be looking at them, and the smell of marijuana is just like overpowering down there now, and it's, you just can't, it's just very pagan, very sad. But that's what this world is. Jesus says you got to be in the world but not of the world. We can't avoid that. Paul says the same thing, but, but when it comes to being inside the Christian community, when it comes to being inside of the Jesus community, that's a whole another story. Look at verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Now that's a rhetorical question. The answer is it's none of my business. He's talking about Christian ethics, ethics inside of the church community, how to handle our marriages, how to handle our homes, our finances, our discipleship. Those are internal issues, not external issues. And then Paul says this, is it not those inside the church you are to judge? God judges those outside. And then he says, purge the evil person from among you, quoting Deuteronomy 17. Now, friends, we can't stay away from the world. What Paul is saying is on the inside of the community, you shouldn't pretend and act, every, act like everything is fine if a friend claims to be a Christian 
and gets involved in these kinds of sinful behaviors. Paul says, if you're in the church, if this guy won't listen, then you've got to take some courageous steps, and you might have to put this guy out of your fellowship. And it's not unloving for you to do that. It's out of love, and it's out of concern for this man and this person so that they might be restored. We gotta make sure we get this right when it comes to the judging issue because it's confusing. So let me try to summarize. We're supposed to judge those on the inside, not the people on the outside. If, if, if someone on the outside doesn't have ethics that lines up with our group, what business is that of ours? But if it's someone on the inside in our leadership team, then we have to address it and hold them accountable. I like the way Andy Stanley summarizes this principle. He says, we in the church are supposed to judge the believing, not the heathen. Can we say that together? <laughs> judge the believing, not the heathen. That's a good way to remember that. Now here's the thing. We get this totally backwards, don't we? We do the exact opposite. We spend so much time judging those on the outside, and so little time actually judging ourselves on the inside. But for those on the outside, they're not accountable to us. They never signed up for this. But once we become part of the church, there's standards, there's accountability. It's kind of like parenting. For those of you who are parents, you'll understand this. Like me, you get this principle. Our kids have rules in our home. If your kids don't do their homework, that's none of my business. But if my kids don't do their homework, well, that's important to us, right? We have to deal with our own family business. This is the principle that the Apostle Paul is teaching here. When it comes to sin, just focus on dealing with the sin on the inside of the church. God will take care of those on the outside of the church. So that's the first problem, the immorality problem. Then Paul switches gears and deals with the legal problem in the next section. The legal problem is in chapter six, as he's dealing with a totally different situation, but this is also quite toxic. So chapter six, verse one says this, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Now this is the second situation he's dealing with that is a legal situation. People are seeking adjudication. You got person A, and then you got person B, and they're both inside of the church. And both of them have somehow gotten involved in this scuffle. One of them has defrauded the other one. Financially, legally, probably has something to do with business or land, and they are legally involved in this lawsuit. And Paul is filled with anger and indignation. Verse five is the most biting critique in the whole letter right here, saying, shame on you, essentially. And in verse one, how dare you do this? How do you have the audacity to bring this before an outside Gentile pagan court? Can't you solve this yourselves? Then he says this, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. We'll pause there. Now let me make a caveat. 
Paul is not saying that there's no place for involving the civil authorities in our lives. Romans chapter 13 says that they are there for specifically that reason, to bring about justice in this world. They are God's servant. Paul himself utilized the legal system in Acts chapter 16 and Acts chapter 25, because in some situations, we are left with no other option. But in our very litigious society, when all we read is about how Johnny's suing Amber and Amber's suing Johnny, in our society where people lawyer up at the drop of a hat, we need to remember that this is the last resort. That's not what's going on here. This is their first instinct at the church in Corinth. Here in this situation, this is all happening inside of the church. It's gotten totally out of control, and the issue has to deal with some sort of financial matter. And we have to just gauge whether or not we involve the court system by, is this a criminal matter? If so, someone else might be defrauded if we don't bring this up, then it might be appropriate. But if it's out of revenge, we need to remember our Lord's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount about non-retaliation, because we have to leave revenge up to God. When we do this, we make a terrible witness before a watching world. This is why Paul says, you're so concerned about victory. Don't you see you've already lost? You see how toxic this is? You, the Christians, are bringing your disputes before the pagans? How does that look? I was trying to think of an illustration for this, and here's what I came up with. Imagine a husband and wife, parents, they're in the middle of a conflict. They're, they're embroiled in a fight, a marital dispute. They, they can't seem to get along. And husband and wife, they're fighting. I know none of you can, none of you can relate to this, I'm sure. But you know, just imagine, hypothetically, you're in a, 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 an argument with your spouse, and you can't seem to find some sort of resolution. So what you decide to do is you go to your five-year-old, and you say, Mommy and Daddy are having an argument, and we need you to help us mediate the conflict. We need you to arbitrate the solution for us. We need you to tell Mommy and Daddy how we're supposed to get along. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. You who will inherit the very kingdom of God and who will judge angels are going before the pagans because you guys can't figure this out? Isn't there a mature brother or sister who could help you? Isn't there an elder that could say something? Isn't there a pastor that could help you through this conflict? You have to go before the pagan court. Do you see how embarrassing? this is? Do you see how people are watching you do this? What are those who are on the outside thinking about us? If you've ever seen the hockey movie Miracle starring Kurt Russell, he plays the role of legendary coach Herb Brooks on the U.S. Olympi Olympic hockey team, and he guided the, the United States to, to a gold medal against the Soviet Union back in 1980. And, and, and Brooks was an excellent coach. He had a lot of good motivational speeches that were recaptured in that film. But the one that stuck out to me was there, there was this one particular player who was kind of showboating, and he was all about his individual numbers and his individual success. And, and he, he, he went to that young man, and he said this. He said this. He said, when you pull on that jersey... When you pull on that jersey, the name on the front is more important than the name on the back. The, the United States of America is much more important than your personal last name and your personal record here. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying about these guys that are taking each other to court. Say, you're bearing the name of Jesus Christ. You bear the reputation of the Lord. The name on the front is more important than the name on the back. So this is Paul's advice to this situation, which leads us to movement two. Here are the problems. What is the solution? How does the Apostle Paul get them to some sort of resolution here? What, what does he do? Well, the Apostle Paul tends to take people back to the gospel. 
Every time there's a problem, every time there's a dispute, he always brings us back to the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what he does in chapter 6 and verse 9. He says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. And such were, past tense, some of you. But you were washed, he says. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Recently, I was at this conference where Piper was, John Piper was giving a message on sanctification, and he said, sometimes our gospel-centered preaching doesn't have balance with regards to the New Testament call to personal holiness. And he encouraged us pastors, there was like 12,000 pastors there, he encouraged us pastors, don't be afraid of the commands in the New Testament, the imperatives in the New Testament to call the people in our churches to see that we have died to sin, that we have been washed so that we might live in righteousness by God's grace and by the Holy Spirit's enabling power. And then he gave this fantastic illustration. He said, imagine you were sentenced to death. Imagine you were sentenced to be hanged for some crime. And though you were on death row, somehow, some way, a substitute was found on your behalf. I know it's really kind of an impossible illustration to imagine, but just imagine that. And this substitute dies in your place. Piper said, that would be a very joyful day. That would be a wonderful day for you. But then he said this, but what if after a year goes by or five years go by, after that person has already been your substitute, you still have made no forward progress in your life. That's no longer a source of joy for you. That's toxic. Friends, there are vast parts of the human life. There are vast parts of the human heart that will not be satisfied just with the news of the pardon of our Lord. Rather, the Lord Jesus has saved us for something greater. He has saved us as a means to an end so that we might live lives that are pleasing to God. It is a very joyful thing to walk out of a prison, but it is a much more joyful thing to live a life that is pleasing to our Lord through the power of the Holy Spirit. You were washed, he says. Don't you remember who you are? And here he's saying, become what you really are. That's the solution. And sometimes we forget that. And just like here, sometimes we need a brother like the Apostle Paul to come and get in our face and show us that we need some support. You know why? Because we don't all have blind spots. On my vehicle, I have these fancy side view mirrors. And now, every time somebody encroaches on my right or to my left, I get this little light that pops up on the side view mirror. Does anybody else have these fancy lights on their side view mirrors? This is, this is a kind of a newer feature in the newer cars. I feel very spoiled having these lights. And now I'm like, wow, car's coming. I didn't notice. And I'm like, you know, just very aware of my blind spots right now because of these fancy lights that I have. And I don't change lanes and get in a wreck. And that's a very good thing. But here, friends, what I'm trying to say is this. The Apostle Paul says we need brothers and sisters to serve as our blind spotlight, to say, hey, listen, something's, something's dangerous here. You're getting involved with something. Here's a warning for you. 
This is why there's dozens of one another passages in the New Testament that we are to follow, such as Romans 12, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Romans 15, instruct one another. Hebrews 10, spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Do you get the idea? We're called to live in authentic community, sincere, authentic, real Christian community, and help each other to walk in the light. This is what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, and he does this everywhere. Take a look at Galatians chapter 6. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is our calling, and we shouldn't shy away from it because it involves a difficult conversation. We should be courageous and also humble and walk towards those messy situations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is doing in our passage for today. With the tender and gentle heart of Christ, we are to, at times, lovingly call each other out before it wrecks our lives. Now, I could just say in a very personal way, I've been on the giving end and on the receiving end of these kinds of difficult conversations. And I don't really like either side of the conversation. Both sides are pretty stressful. Both sides are pretty uncomfortable. But I thank God for people who love me enough to tell me the truth, to be rude to me at times for Jesus' sake and for the sake that he calls us to a higher standard. Because what's more stressful is living in a toxic community that just allows these things to fester and contaminate instead of living in real, authentic Christian community. This is why Paul's writing. Now, I know this is a hard passage. I know this is like one of the most uncomfortable passages in the Bible, but I think we need to apply it to ourselves. And there's three possible applications that I would encourage you to think about today. I don't know where you are, but I bet one of these three would fit with you. For example, number one, some of us are self-righteous and we need to repent. You've been too judgy. You're the reason why so many Christians have such a bad view, of, so many non-Christians have such a bad view of Christians. You look down on people for what they do, what they've done, how they live, how they look, how they've failed, how they've succeeded just to make yourself look better. You need to repent. The sin of self-righteousness will eat you alive. The sin of self-righteousness drove Jesus crazy. It creates a toxic culture in the church. Friends, if this is you, you need to repent. Listen, if the sins of others do not break your heart, perhaps the reason is because your heart has never been broken over your own sin. And you need to repent. Number two, some of us in the room here today, we need courage to confront. We have people around us with problems, and we see those problems, and we are avoiding them. We are raising ourselves up as the standard above God and saying, I think I'm going to take care of this by being gracious and just being tender and being kind and never saying anything. And we need courage to confront. God has helped us in our life. God has helped you in your life to get to the place where you are. You've taken the log out of your own eye, and now you can help others. It's like that old song. I can see clearly now the log is gone. And you need to confront and God will use you 
with the tender, loving heart of Paul and the tender, loving heart of the Lord Jesus. That's your calling. Third, for some of us, the application for our text today is we're living in sin and we need to listen. Somebody has already lovingly and humbly confronted you and you turned on them and you said something like, that's none of your business. Why are you judging me? But in your heart, you knew they were right. And in your heart, you knew that they were onto something. And in your heart, you knew something needed to change. And so to you, your application today is you need to listen. Because your defensiveness only ensures that your, your past will keep showing up in your future. And if that's you, I encourage you to listen. Because your friend was not being judgmental. They took a risk to care about you and love you. And you need to listen. So I don't know where you fall on the spectrum today, but allow the Holy Spirit to lead you to apply this passage to your heart. So Paul writes this letter, and he sends it off. And I wonder how it was received when they first got this thing and read it publicly, out loud. We actually know. We actually know what happened, because there's a second letter written to the same church in Corinth. And so as I wrap up this message and the worship team can come, let me just share with you the outcome to this difficult situation. As Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he says this, I see that my letter, meaning 1 Corinthians, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. And look at what he says also in chapter two. He says, for I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. This is good fruit because of good seeds that were sown into the ground and receptive hearts that were willing to do hard things and have hard conversations and submit their lives to Jesus Christ who takes ashes and makes them beautiful. Can you imagine a, a church full of men and women that are committed to living like this in real, authentic community? Let's be that church. And Heavenly Father, how grateful we are that you preserve this difficult passage for us today so that we might be reminded not only of the seriousness of sin, but of the high calling of the Lord Jesus Christ to honor him with our lives. Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage to take the next step and to follow you, even if that means following you into the hardest places we've ever gone. Lord, we want to be a community that is completely detoxed with the power of the gospel. Thank you that you have washed us. Thank you that we are truly clean through the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to live out this truth every day. It's for Christ's sake and for his reputation we pray. Amen.